daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, China's foreign state immunity law will take effect on January 1st next year. How will it affect foreign businesses operating in China? Turkey's parliament committee approves Sweden's bid to join NATO. What happens next? And we continue our year-end review series to look at how the Israel-Hamas conflict has impacted the Middle East and beyond. China will enforce a foreign state immunity law starting January 1st next year. Under the new legislation, sovereign states will no longer be fully immune from prosecution in China. The law stipulates the circumstances under which Chinese courts can exercise jurisdiction over foreign states and their property, including disputes arising from commercial activities, relevant personal injury, and property damage. The law also states that Chinese courts can take compulsory judicial measures against foreign states' commercial property under strictly limited circumstances. For more on this new legislation, we are now joined on the line by Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University. Victor, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so can you first provide a brief overview of China's new foreign state immunity law and what major changes does it bring to China's legal system? First of all, the uh, enactment uh, of this uh, new uh, state immunity law by the People's Republic of China is an important but also very cautious step. Uh, the law recognizes uh, sovereign immunity for foreign states as well as its activities in China performed in the capacity of foreign states. However, it has also introduced the important exceptions to the extent that the foreign states performing non-state functions for example, commercial activities, or resulting in injuries to the Chinese persons, uh, etc., uh, which occur when they are not performed in state activities. Uh, therefore, these changes are important to reflect the realities in, on the ground, as well as the general trends in the development of the state immunity laws and practices in the world at large. Basically, there is no longer absolute unconditional foreign state immunity. There is still foreign state immunity. However, to the extent that the activities are performed not strictly in the foreign state capacities, mostly in commercial activities or resulting in injuries or other things, then there will be special procedures and process to deal with these non-state activities. And this is a positive step because otherwise foreign state in China is engaged in many things, especially in all kinds of commercial activities. And this new law will bring greater clarity to the situation and provide Immunity, on the one hand, uh, in the most broad sense of the word, but exceptions which need to be dealt with according to this new law. Yes, and can you be more, uh, I mean, can you explain more on how this law aligns with existing international legal frameworks on sovereign immunity? First of all, sovereign state immunity is a very important concept in the international law. And uh, uh, providing sovereign uh, state immunity is absolutely necessary uh, for uh, state activities between states, for example. However, in special circumstances, for example, a foreign embassy in China entering into commercial deal to rent uh, apartments for its diplomats or pay for vehicles, for example. Now, these transactions are not state activities. They are related to the functions of the foreign embassy, but they are mostly commercial in nature, and the parties to these contracts or these agreements are commercial 
parties in the best of their capacity. Uh, therefore, for example, if a foreign embassy uh, uh, does not live up to its side of the bargain, uh, leading to the uh, breaches of the contract, for example, they need to be uh, dealt with. And the foreign embassy should not claim state immunity to refuse to perform uh, their obligations under such commercial contracts. And this is actually very important because when you have foreign states operating in China, they, their functions can be divided most generally into two different categories. State activity, for example, in the capacity of their diplomats, in their dealings with the Chinese foreign ministry, the Chinese government entities, for example, and they should continue to enjoy a very important state immunity. On the other hand, if they enter into uh, non-state activities, commercial transactions, leasing of uh, properties, uh, not exactly their embassy premises, for example, or rental cars, or sending their kids to school or paying for pianos they purchase for their uh, family use, for example, then they are strictly commercial transactions in their nature, and this newly introduced uh, foreign state immunity law provides appropriate treatment for, on the one hand, state activities which enjoy state immunity and non-state functions which will be dealt with as commercial transactions. Okay. This is, generally speaking, in line with the practice in the world. Okay, okay, but why the changes now? What specific events or situation in recent years do you think uh, could have led China to enact this new law on foreign state immunity? Well, first of all, uh, over the past uh, 44 years, the body of the Chinese law itself uh, has been expanding, and then they are under constant review and modification. Now, this is especially important in light of the fact that the Chinese economic and political development have really been more rapid compared with their counterparts in other parts of the world. And therefore, the laws should not be just be carved in stone. They should be tested by practice on the ground. And whenever there is deficiency or failure to deal with specific uh, events, for example, Either new laws need to be introduced and enforced, or existing laws need to be modified or even changed or rescinded, for example. And this is very important because of the rapid development on the ground in China and because of the very rapid expansion of commercial activities, uh, business dealings, etc. And on the other hand, tremendous amount of people-to-people exchanges between China and the rest of the world. Uh, I think the uh, enactment and the enforcement of this new law is very important given the continuous change in China on a rapid way, given the increasing uh, weight of the Chinese uh, diplomatic activities. There are more and more countries having operations and presence in China. China has diplomatic relations with 183 countries and almost all the international organizations and lots of these diplomats and foreign embassies, etc., operating in China, of course, they need to enter into uh, non-immunized commercial activities of all kinds for their embassy, for their diplomats, for their families, for their kids, you name it. And these activities should be recognized as they are They are commercial activities, and they should be subject to the exceptions in this newly enacted Chinese state immunity law. Okay, then how do you expect this new law to affect the confidence of foreign businesses operating in China? Well, I hope this will further enhance the uh, confidence of the uh, foreign entities in China. Now, when you talk about foreign uh, business entities, they are actually not uh, affected by this Mm -hmm. foreign sovereign immunity law at all. This law mostly applies 
two entities, including both persons or foreign missions, for example, uh, which are sovereign in nature. For example, foreign embassies or visiting heads of state, heads of government, foreign minister, very senior diplomats, enjoying diplomatic immunity, etc. Now, when you talk about commercial business entities or foreign private uh, persons, they actually do not enjoy foreign state immunity at all. They are subject to the rule of law, to the due process under the uh, law of the People's Republic of China. And if they move to other countries, to European countries, Japan, the United States, etc., they also uh, get the same treatment. Uh, therefore, the business community, especially foreign business community in China, should actually be encouraged that the Chinese laws are being modified uh, on a regular basis and greater clarity has been created by introducing this foreign state sovereignty uh, immunity law. And this will avoid many misunderstanding or confusion whenever problems occur. And these problems sometimes occur under contracts, as I mentioned, leasing of property and uh, entering into all kinds of service arrangements, etc., etc. And this will not cause confusion or lack of confidence. This will bring about greater clarity. And especially what is being provided under this new law, which will be uh, starting to be enforced on January the 1st, 2024, is and has been done by most developed countries for many years already. So in a sense, China is moving up to what we call international standard, changing from absolute unconditional immunity for states to conditional and uh, uh, immunity, and also providing very specific exceptions, providing procedures, processes, and uh, due process to deal with these uh, exceptional circumstances, which should no longer be cla clarified as state activities, but as personal or commercial activities. Okay, but the law does the law contain any safeguards to prevent its misuse against foreign states or politi for political or economic reasons? Of course. I think for China, as for many other countries in the world, state sovereignty is a very important concept for all these countries, and also it remains a very important concept in international law involving different countries, different states, etc. Uh, on the other hand, I think this law has also built in very strict and special uh, arrangements. For example, a law is a law, but for this particular law, the opinion by the Chinese foreign ministry will be very, very important. For example, is this a state actor? Does this state actor enjoy immunity to start with? What kind of immunity it should enjoy? What's the scope of immunity? Does, the, does this particular act constitute an exception to the state activities? And what kind of exceptions can be worked out? And what kind of special procedures and processes should be triggered. Now, in this, in this very important sense, if a court in China is brought in to deal with the specific circumstances, they need to consult the opinion of the Chinese foreign ministry, which will have a very important position to take on all these important matters. Because otherwise, if left alone, a court just deals with the situation as a judiciary issue, then it's one thing very straightforward. But if they need to consult with the foreign ministry to start with, to check out on all these important issues, to make sure that, that nothing will be left amiss. Mm -hmm. Now, allow me to use one example. You know that several years ago, the spouse of a diplomat of the U.S. Embassy in the United Kingdom uh, around foul of traffic uh, rules and killed a British uh, gentleman uh, by accident. And this is not state immunized activity, of course. This is actually a breach of the traffic rules. And the person involved should not hide behind 
sovereign immunity or state immunity to escape from the uh, justice. However, this particular person fled the United Kingdom back to the United States, and the United States government, urged upon by the family of the victim, has been asking the United States to bring that person back to the United Kingdom for uh, due process, for uh, rule of law, etc., to make the whole situation uh, whole. However, this has never been solved uh, amicably between the United States, on the one hand, and the United Kingdom, on the other hand. I would say this is a very typical case of state immunity provided for diplomats and their spouses, on the one hand, and exceptions to these state immunities, because this act itself, killing an innocent person in the United Kingdom by the spouse of a diplomat who enjoys state immunity, uh, should be dealt with separately, because mm-hmm. this is not a state immunity-covered activities or acts. They are exceptions to these uh, uh, immunized uh, diplomats, for example, and they need to be dealt with as they are. Now, in the Chinese context, context I would not be surprised if there are similar activities involving property, involving personal injury, involving many other things performed by immunized uh, uh, persons or the state actors, mm-hmm. for example, like the embassy or the visiting uh, high-level state delegations to China, etc. But while the majority of the activities should be considered as covered by state immunity arrangement, there may be other things which are exceptions rather than rules, and they need to be dealt with as what they are, for example, personal injury cases or commercial transactions or failure to perform on your side of the bargain in the commercial arrangement. Yes, yes. Thank you, Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University. Turkey's Parliamentary Foreign Affairs Commission has granted approval to Sweden's NATO membership bid, marking a significant step that brings the Nordic country closer to joining the Western Military Alliance. For more, my colleague Anna earlier talked to Dr. George Skoblis, Director of EU JANA Programs and Senior Research Fellow at European Institute of Nice. Dr. Zugoblos, the approval came from Turkey's Parliamentary Committee. Could you elaborate on the significance of this committee's role in the decision-making process? And will Sweden face more hurdles and challenges as the bid moves to the General Assembly? There is a step-by-step approach in what Turkey is doing in order to possibly approve the potential membership of Sweden to, to NATO. And this is based on a memorandum of understanding that uh, was signed uh, uh, in uh, the summer of 2022. So Turkey has some uh, specific uh, requirements uh, that Sweden is elaborating on achieving. Uh, uh, and uh, this is a process that uh, takes time. And uh, the more Sweden uh, is uh, making progress according to the requirements set by Turkey, uh, the more likely it becomes for Sweden to become a full member of NATO. So it's here where we are right now, and uh, more steps are expected to be taken uh, in the uh, medium uh, term in order for Sweden to become a full member. We know Turkish President Erdogan previously raised objections particularly related to terrorism concerns and defense trade embargoes. Now, what do you make of the reasons behind the shift of Erdogan's attitude? And how has Sweden addressed his objections? Well, the memorandum of understanding that was signed in the summer of 2022 is addressing some of the concerns of Turkey. And on these grounds, uh, if uh, President of Turkey, Tayyip Erdogan, recognizes some uh, progress from the other side, then uh, he authorizes the relevant committees in order to accelerate the process for the Turkish parliament to approve the NATO bid of Sweden. Uh, so I would uh, connect the current uh, situation and the current progress to uh, exactly the steps that uh, Sweden is taking uh, in order 
to fulfill the, the requirements, especially as far as the fight against terrorism is concerned, but also, as you nicely pointed out, regarding the potential participation of Turkey in, in European defense progress. But again, it is a, a, a process which is continuing, so it's not uh, uh, clear yet when uh, Turkey will give its final green light for Sweden to become a full member. Dr. Zugablis, President Erdogan sent a Sweden speech to Parliament in October last year, but has also linked its ultimate ratification with the U.S. approval of sales of F-16 fighter jets to Turkey. Could you shed light on the broader implications, especially considering the White House support but U.S. congressional opposition on this, and how this geopolitical interplay reflect the broader dynamics between Turkey, the U.S., and NATO? Well, this is a very important uh, question we, because we need uh, certainly to refer to the Memorandum of Understanding signed uh, uh, between uh, uh, Turkey on the one hand and uh, Finland and Sweden on the other hand. But at the same time, uh, it is evident uh, uh, that uh, Turkey's foreign policy is also linked to the evolution of Turkey's American uh, relations. And it's not a secret that relations between Turkey and the United States are strained in recent years because Turkey's foreign policy is rather autonomous. And this policy of, of, of Turkey is causing some concern to the United States. So among other things, the sale of F-16 fighters from the United States to Turkey is on, on the agenda. But what matters more for the United States it's not necessarily this sale only. It's the general context of Turkey's foreign policy. But again, from the Turkish point of view, uh, the autonomy is the most important parameter that will characterize its foreign affairs conduct. So it's here where we are. On the one hand, the United States expects from Turkey uh, to align its policies with those of the West. On the other hand, Turkey believes that in some uh, issues and areas it can act autonomously. There was no clear time frame for U.S. congressional approval of the sale of F-16 fighter jets. Are there potential consequences for Sweden's NATO membership bid as a result? Well, I would say that the bargain between uh, Turkey and the United States uh, is uh, continuing. And the more the bargain is continuing, uh, the more uh, time will be required for uh, Turkey to give its... Uh, uh, approval for NATO's bid of, uh, of Sweden. Uh, uh, there is a progress uh, uh, which is uh, continuing on, on, the, on that regard because there are several uh, issues of disagreement between the United States and, and Turkey. So obviously the F-16 issue is, is highly significant for, for, for many reasons. The most important one is that Turkey is a NATO member state and uh, uh, it is natural for the United States to supply a NATO member state with uh, F-16 fighters. At the same time, however, there are some uh, or, uh, some uh, disagreements also by other NATO member states, like Greece, for example, concerning the potential usage of F-16 fighters by Turkey. Uh, at the same time, however, Turkey and the United States disagree also on other issues. A very important example is uh, the Israel-Hamas war in the Middle East and obviously the Ukraine crisis. So we see that uh, Turkey is not necessarily aligning its policy with that of NATO. And this is what is causing concern to the United States. And that's why negotiations are going on. That's Dr. George Zagopoulos, Director of EU JANA Programs and Senior Research Fellow at European Institute of Nice. Coming up is our year-end review series where we reflect on the defining moments that shaped the global landscape in 2023. And today we'll take a look at how the Israel-Hamas conflict has impacted the Middle East and beyond. You're listening to World Today. And remind our listeners, if you want to hear this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. We continue our year-end review series, shining light on the defining moments that have shaped the global landscape in 2023. Israel-Hamas conflict surges as the war in Ukraine persists in 2023. 
On October 7th, Hamas launched a cross-border attack on Israel. In response, Israel quickly launched a military campaign to eradicate Hamas. The war and the following humanitarian crisis in Gaza have shaken the region and the world. Despite the mounting death toll and increasing international calls to end the war, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to fight on. How has the Israel-Hamas conflict impacted the Middle East and beyond? What is Israel's endgame, and is there a viable path to peace that will allow people of the two neighboring countries to live their lives? To discuss these questions and more, we are joined by Greg Burton, Professor of Global Islamic Politics at Deakin University, and Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Wang, to start with you, can we first look back on how the current war started? What were the immediate cause and long-term reasons that contributed to the escalation of tensions in Gaza? I think this is, a, uh, as you mentioned, is a very major event in the Middle East, especially uh, especially the very major event in international uh, politics that uh, shaken the uh, landscape of the geopolitics in the region. Uh, I think this round of the conflict started uh, from several reasons we can explain. Of course, the very deeply rooted course behind this uh, round of the conflict uh, could be attributed to... Uh, is really the stalemate and the deadlock of Israeli-Palestine peace process. So that is why uh, the disappointments and the dissatisfaction and anger of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, they hope to express their uh, anger and attract the attention from international society through these very serious and intensified uh, military actions against Israel. And then also Israel retaliated uh, uh, through these military actions uh, in the Gaza Strip by targeting the, not only the Hamas members, but also the uh, local civilians. So this become the very deeply rooted courses. But I think that also the direct immediate course uh, could be attributed to the ongoing uh, breakthrough between the normalization peace process uh, between uh, Israel and uh, Saudi Arabia and other Middle Eastern Arab states, because from the perspective of Palestinians, if the normalized ties were uh, finalized between Israel and uh, Saudi Arabia, that means that Arab states uh, in the Arab world, the Palestinian issue could be further marginalized and become the very, very uh, issue that would be ignored or indifferent uh, in situated in the in, in the very corner of this of the region. So that is why uh, I think this uh, all of the factors that uh, they all together the provoked this round of the conflict and also means a very, very major disasters, not only for the Israeli and the Palestinians, but also for the region uh, that would bring the region back to the different camps and also the rivalries between the different camps. Okay, so Professor Barton, given the consideration of both immediate and long-term causes of the conflict, do you think there were opportunities that the war could have been avoided? Or do you see it as, as an unavoidable outcome, just a matter of when? Look, I think the uh, impact of the October 7th Hamas terrorist attack was always going to produce war. Uh, it, it's hard to realistically think of Israel not responding with, with military means. Uh, what we need to understand, though, is Hamas was doing something incredibly provocative. The uh, terrorist attack on October 7th was obscene uh, beyond imagining uh, every detail. I mean, uh, killing of babies, killing of old people, families murdered in cold blood, uh, women assaulted sexually, people burnt alive in their safe houses, uh, hundreds of people taken hostage. Hamas was doing something outrageous because it wanted outrage. It wanted to provoke a response which would draw Israel into a ground war in the Gaza Strip. Uh, there had been a series of ground wars in the Gaza Strip in the past that all would be much smaller and uh, relatively short in duration. And this is turning into something altogether different. So the question is not whether Israel would go after Hamas in response to the provocation, but how it would do it. And I think the problem at the moment is that it's it's playing more into Hamas's hands and giving Hamas what it wants than it's really serving the interests of Israel. And of course, it's an utter humanitarian tragedy for the people of Gaza. Uh, we've got 2.2 million people in a small space shuffled from uh, north to south, told to go to one location as that would be safe. 
and then bombed in that location. Um, now the entire two million population is on the point of mass starvation. Um, the entire population needs humanitarian intervention. The hospitals that were working have largely stopped working. In the north, there are no hospitals working. Uh, none of it had to be this way. So it's not a question of whether Israel uh, had a choice in responding to Hamas. The question is how it did it. And unfortunately, what it's doing now is is not in anyone's interest except Hamas's. Okay, so uh, Professor Burton, uh, Netanyahu said in a recent statement that the war will continue until the end. But what what does the end exactly mean? What is Israel's end game in this conflict? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, uh, observers, uh, including people very close to the Israeli government, have pointed out that there is no planning for the day after, as it's been referred, when when the conflict stops. Now, initially, Israel used very hyperbolic language, or the government did, saying it would eliminate Hamas. We know that's not actually feasible. Um, a reasonable interpretation is to end Hamas's capacity to rule the Gaza Strip and to project military force in, as a terrorist group beyond. Um, that is achievable, but it's hard. Uh, and it's the question is, at what point do you say you've achieved enough? The problem is that the way Israel is going about this war is that it's completely... Um, destroying the lives of 2.2 million people. Uh, we've, we're past 20,000 deaths so far. Half of those are children. Uh, most of them are women and children. Uh, much of the physical infrastructure of the Gaza Strip has been destroyed. So it's not it's not clear at what point uh, enough is enough. One of the problems for Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister is because of his personal uh, legal issues and other problems, very low popularity, uh, even lower than it's ever been before at the moment, the moment the fighting stops, he's likely to be forced out of office. So he has a personal desire to keep the, the war going indefinitely. And he's talking of months and years, um, but it seems unlikely he'll be allowed to get away with that. So one of the many uh, hard to understand aspects of what's happening at the moment is that Israel really isn't thinking through the long term. What it's doing in Gaza now will make it more difficult for Israel in the long term. Uh, it needs to have somebody other than Hamas ruling the Gaza Strip. It says it doesn't want to occupy it. But what it's doing now makes it very hard for anyone else to come in and, and, and rebuild Gaza. So I think there's a lot of questions we just aren't seeing answers to at the moment. Okay, so Dr. Wan, uh, what do you think is Benjamin Netanyahu's endgame? And uh, is the goal to eliminate Hamas realistically achievable? And, and furthermore, could the destruction of Hamas potentially resolve the long-standing issues between Israel and Palestine? Uh, I think the end game from the uh, from the description of uh, Netanyahu and other um, and other Israeli politicians, I think they they, they, they express with very uh, strong ambiguities because there were no consensus inside Israel. You know, when should this game, or if we call this word a game from the Israeli perspective, when should this game should it be ended? Because um, how to how should we define uh, that uh, the Hamas eliminated? And how should we define that uh, the Israeli uh, the, the safety would be ensured? And how would we define that uh, the Gaza Strip will become an uh, area that uh, reached the status of satisfied from Israeli understanding? So this, these are all the very tricky and as well as the very difficult uh, choices for, uh, for, to, to, to make by Israeli politicians. So when they talk about the to the end, I think he hopes to, uh, on the one hand, that uh, t to show his existence, uh, that the Israeli military actions will continue. But on the, on the other hand, that he hopes to show his very assertiveness in the front of the Israeli public, especially in front of the Israeli right-wing, ultra-right-wing, a political and social opinion, that he could be continue to be uh, the leader of the Israeli government led by the right-wing parties. So uh, that, is why uh, that is why there is no clear definition about when the world should be ended and how this war should be ended, because nobody knows and how this war should be ended. Nobody knows when this war could come to the end. And nobody knows that what would be done once this, uh, the military action suspended, what should be done and after the military uh, scenario, and what should be the political structure for the future uh, Gaza Strip after the Hamas should be ousted uh, from the power. So these are all the very difficult choices and difficult questions. So the only thing that we know is that Israeli wants, still want their... Uh, military actions continue, but uh, to to what extent and to 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 what kind of the area to to what kind of the the time nobody knows. 
Okay, so uh, Professor Barton,、uh, actually, Israel's defense minister said earlier this week that Israel will, was being attacked in a multi-arena war from seven areas, and he asserted that anyone acting against Israel is a potential target. So, how do you view these comments, and what risks do you see for a possible escalation of regional conflict in the Middle East? Well, on face value, they seem like reasonable comments. Israel is in a very difficult neighbourhood; it's always faced great challenges, and so you can sort of understand any defence minister in Israel,、um, pretty much at any time, making these sort of comments. But particularly at a crisis like the moment. But when you dig deeper, you realise you've got a the, an extremely right-wing government, the most far-right government Israel's ever had, including this defence minister, one of the most far-right politicians ever in senior position in Israel, and the danger is that. We're seeing actions driven by politics, not by rational、uh, security planning decisions.、Uh, Israel's always had to make difficult decisions; doesn't you know that makes it hard for it to make friends.、Uh, but up until、uh, the October seventh attack, we saw the Abraham Accord going ahead with Saudi Arabia.、Uh, even now, with all of this tragic disaster, Saudi Arabia is still poised to play a big role in, in rebuilding、um, Gaza. But it needs to trust the government of Israel. Uh, and other regional powers need to trust the government of Israel. We've seen a, a peace initiative from Egypt, Israel's neighbour, which Israel has rejected.、Uh, that seems like the beginnings of some way out for a ceasefire and perhaps the, the next possible step. So, on the one hand, you can understand an Israeli defence minister saying things are really difficult. We're surrounded on all sides. But given the the political nature of this minister and this government, and given what they've been doing these last twelve weeks. The fear is that they're actually going to stumble into something much worse. So, much worse. We're seeing、um, Houthi、uh, militia from Yemen in the south, effectively stopping shipping going to Israel through the Red Sea, which means stopping shipping going through、um, the Suez Canal, which is you know pretty consequential.、Uh, we're seeing attacks projected out by Iran, and the Houthis are、uh, backed by Iran、uh, into the Arabian Sea. Uh, we're seeing this unstable situation on the the border with Lebanon, the south of Lebanon. Hezbollah, of course, was formed、uh, after the 1982 invasion of Lebanon and the、um, siege of Beirut by Israel, which was supposed to bring peace, but actually saw the creation of of Hezbollah backed by Iran.、Uh, so it's not hard to see why Israel should be worried, but it's also Really worrying that、uh, this government may take it in a direction which which ends up with conflict on all sides. So far, we've avoided out, outright conflict with Iran, but Iran directly and through its proxies, Hezbollah、uh, and the Houthis and others, is sort of pushing the limits.、Um, and all the while, American credibility is eroded because America is seen to be giving、uh, a blank check to Israel, even though behind the scenes there's lots of concerns. So,、uh, you know, this is. This is a really precarious moment. It could go badly wrong any day. Okay, so Dr. Wan, how do you see the United States' role in the current scenario, particularly if we look at its support for Israel, its、uh, recent strikes in Iraq, and also the formation of an international naval task force in the Red Sea? I think the United States now、uh, is actually in a kind of dilemma, both politically and militarily,、uh, from the polit- uh, per- uh, political perspective that the United States. Uh, they hope, on the one hand, they have to maintain the so-called unbroken、uh, allies ties with Israel. So that is very priority for the United States、uh, political arena. And、uh, under that uh, direction, the、uh, United States、uh, provided a lot of the military assistance to Israelis,、uh, military forces, especially、uh, to support military actions against the Gaza Strip.、Uh, but on the other hand, the United States hope to. Uh, to minimize the, the the negative influence of their ties with Israel and hopes to bring the the ties、uh, back with the Arab states. So that is why、uh, he.、Uh, but against the backdrop of that, United States very continuously supports to Israel that Arab states stand closely with、uh, the、uh, with with each other and keep a distance, although in public. Uh, with the United States, that makes the United States、uh, foreign policy politically in the in the Middle East a very very、uh, dilemma, a very very difficult position. And the military, the United States, as we stressed, that、uh, on the one hand they have to maintain the、uh, the very security、uh, safety of Israel, national security. But then on the other hand, given that the United States' close 
ties with Israel that United States targets and the military presence and also civilian presence in the whole region become the uh, the, the, the become the attacking targets of local uh, militias and militants, uh, military groups. For example, that in, as you mentioned in Iraq, in Syria, and also in uh, maybe now that that is what is happening in, in, in the Red Sea, attacked by the Houthi in the south in the northern Yemen. So everything become uh, become a very uh, to the point that that if if, if not managed well or managed properly. The regional escalation would be escalated into the situ- into the situation that would harm the United States' own interests in this region. Mm-hmm. So that is why I say that the United States is now in the very very difficult and, and the dilemma position in the Middle East. Okay, so Professor Barton, to what extent do you anticipate the U.S. becoming further involved in the conflict in the region, and how might such increased engagement impact the dynamics of the conflict? Well, the short answer is it all depends. I mean, what is very clear is the U.S. doesn't want to get any more involved than it currently is, but it has positioned uh, two um, aircraft carrier flotillas in the east of the Mediterranean. It's using them as as sort of mobile air bases to project power into uh, strikes, uh, particularly into Iraq. We've got other uh, Iran-backed militia. Uh, It's basically trying to say to Israel, we will hold the line outside your borders to the north if you don't respond to provocations and launch attacks yourself, because that will just make things worse. But all the while, America is very much hoping that this show of deterrence will will, will hold so that we don't see uh, an escalation of the conflict. And of course, behind all of this is uh, the potential for open conflict with um, Iran. So far, it hasn't happened. Uh, and the U.S., I think, is very much hoping that the answer to this question is that they'll get no further involved, but they may not have a choice. Uh, it, it may be that something um, collapses very quickly and the situation cascades into what becomes a regional war in which the U.S. would be a major player, and that would change everything. So I think everyone really hopes that this doesn't happen. I suspect you know, much of the administration in Tehran um, also hopes this, um, but that doesn't mean that bad things could won't happen. Okay, so uh, Dr. Wong, just now you said this um, foreign policy dilemma that the Biden administration is, is currently facing. Uh, but do you think the United States is becoming more and more isolated on this issue? And to what extent does this impact its credibility on the global stage? I think yes, United States now, uh, given uh, due to the, the, the what is happening in the Middle East, United States. Uh, foreign policy become uh, 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 further isolated because we can see that uh, the, in, in the votes in, uh, on, the, on the United Nations against uh, the over the, the, the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the United States would be the only country. Although sometimes uh, together with the United Kingdom, they two together uh, are on, uh, uh, and also with Israel, they are one camp, and uh, the rest of the, 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 the members. Not only in the United Nations Security Council, but also United United Nations Assembly, that they are the, the rest of the country, the rest of the world are the, are the other parts of the camp. So, United States foreign policies in the Middle East have become more and more isolated, and also uh, more and more criticized and blamed by the by the other parts, uh, by the regional countries. So uh, that may, in turn, I think, force the United States to reconsider what, what they should done, what they have already done and uh, what they should de- do next uh, f- uh, to persuade Israel from suspending uh, military actions in the Gaza Strip and also to uh, to pr- give to impose much more pressures against the decision makers of Israel but uh, given the, the the problem is Israel they hope that they could still make the decision by themselves rather than under the pressure or under the influence from the Washington so i don't think united states uh, uh, the persuasion united states pressure will work the only thing that the United States could do to persuade Israel is to suspend the military uh, weaponry uh, assistance to Israel. But the United States will not do that. So I don't think the United States has any ways to find a way out to, to get, get out of this isolation of status in the region and also in their political uh, foreign policies in this round of the conflict. Okay. Well, Dr. Barton, I think we mentioned earlier this uh, Abraham Accords, uh, which was seen as a sig- significant milestone in U.S. diplomacy back in 2020. But how do the recent events underscore the challenges of achieving regional peace 
through normalization deals between Arab states and Israel, particularly when the Palestinian causes is not adequately addressed? Well, I think the last part of the question is key. Um, I, I think we do have to think about what the day after when the conflict, the open conflict in, in the Gaza Strip finishes and we have a different administration than the Hamas administration in power. That's tremendously difficult to achieve, but it, it will involve um, the support of the region and perhaps international powers. So US and potentially China, as well as, as uh, Egypt and, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, and it will have to have a plan to where it goes. In other words, there'll be a temporary transition stage, but it basically will end up with the beginnings of a two-state solution, if, if you follow through the logic that there will have to be a Palestinian-governed uh, Gaza Strip, and then, of course, that raises the question of what happens in the West Bank. And so we're back to the question that was being ignored with the Abraham Accords. The Abraham Accords, in many ways, um, you know, you can see them as naive or you can see them as attempting to be realistic and achieve something in difficult circumstances. But the um, the conceit of the Abraham Accords was that we could move on and, and achieve peace in the region without dealing with the really difficult problem of the of the um, Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, as it turns out, I mean, Hamas has made that no longer possible. The October 7th terror attack means that Hamas can't go back to being in power in, in the Gaza Strip, so there has to be some other solution. And... Uh, in the end, in the long run, this 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 could be a good outcome. But of course, it's it's coming at tremendous human cost, and we have a government in Israel that doesn't want to talk about it. We have, uh, as we just heard, the Biden administration in America struggling to to have its way with Israel. It would really want a very different approach. It wants the government of Israel to think about the day after what happens. Um, of course, we have American elections coming up uh, in November next year. Um, the Abraham Accords began under Trump. No doubt he'll, in his campaigning will will pivot to sort of saying that he has the solution and, and some in the Israeli government will, will hope that, in fact, Trump is re-elected and that, that is their way out. But I think really, realistically, the takeaway conclusion at this point is we have to deal with the um, uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict because much as people have tried to wish it away uh, without solving this problem, without beginning to make progress because it won't be solved immediately uh, we can't realistically expect to, to ever get um, uh, any sort of lasting peace for the people of Israel or the people of Palestine okay so dr. Wan uh, what do you think could be the best scenario uh, in terms of the governance of Gaza once the war ends I think there were several plans uh, due to uh, from the different parties is really uh, right wing now also right wing they hope that Israel will control and uh, to uh, to maintain a military uh, control and occupation in the West Bank, but this is not realistic because uh, because uh, because if you if you maintain a military occupation, it also maintains that if you also uh, it, it also suggests that uh, you have to uh, the Israeli government they have to uh, to hold the burden uphold the burdens of the financial and the civil affairs. So that is. Against the interest of Israel, Israel has no budget for that affairs. Uh, but and also there were also other plans. For example, uh, proposed by United States that Egypt would take over the Gaza Strip, just uh, as what has happened in uh, uh, in the 1968. But Israel, uh, but also Egypt rejected because first from Egypt understanding that more than two million people in a very very narrow strip, it is a very difficult uh, task for any country to take that kind of the responsibilities. And also the uh, Israeli government proposed that the United Nations uh, and, and also the United European Union countries, they should com compose together to, uh, into the very uh, com committee to to be in charge of the, the, the regional affairs in the Gaza Strip, but then also rejected by the European countries because they believe that the Palestinians, they should have their own independent government rather than uh, monitor and supervised by the other countries. So the very last option proposed by United States that, uh, and also by Egypt is right now that uh, invite the, the Palestinian authorities in the West Bank back to the Gaza Strip and to replace the, 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 the government, local government led by Hamas in the Gaza Strip. But this is also very impossible because that's related, closely related to the relations between Hamas and the Fatah, uh, which... Uh, which two camps that has already entered the, the very total confrontation after 20, uh, 2007. 
So all of these options, they have a different option, but all of the options seem unrealistic. Uh, unrealistic. So no one knows what would happen next. So Israel only know how to break the, the, the status quo, but no one knows what should be done to construct the future. Okay, so Dr. Barton, what do you see as the most critical steps that needs to be taken by regional and global stakeholders right now to try to de-escalate the tensions? What we need absolutely right now is a a ceasefire, an end to this war in its current phase. We had a, a, a very productive ceasefire period. Unfortunately, the resumption of conflict has been even worse, sort of even worse conflict than before the ceasefire. We need an immediate ceasefire. Uh, accepting that Israel will, will need to go after the Hamas leadership and, and deal with Hamas's um, threat projection. Uh, there will be some ongoing conflict, but this sort of aerial campaign, this indiscriminate bombing, uh, a ground war that is also indiscriminate, that needs to, to stop immediately uh, because we now have a humanitarian disaster, not just from the direct impact of the conflict, but from people on the point of starvation and from uh, the very real prospect of, of a widespread outbreak of disease. Uh, we don't have any functioning hospitals in the north of the Gaza Strip. Uh, most of the 30-plus hospitals that were functioning before this conflict are no longer functioning as normal. They don't have supplies. So uh, ceasefire, you know, Israel rejects this because it's, it sees it in binary terms saying that will just mean that Hamas wins. But, it, no, there's another option where the pressure remains on Hamas, but this current phase of the war ends so that humanitarian relief can come to these 2.2 million people who desperately need it. Okay, thank you, Greg Barton, Professor of Global Islamic Politics at Deakin University, and Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. And for further discussions, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.